0: If you guys have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 7 through 8. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. I think we got live stream there. Hopefully there's some people there that I know that are uh, tuning in. It's good to uh, be here. And for those of you that I do know, it's good to be here and see you guys. So um, mask wearing, I have yet to preach or teach in any context where people are actually wearing their mask. And it's hard enough as a preacher to look at the crowd normally and to see what people are thinking. It's a dangerous thing to try to figure out. Oftentimes people look angry, and when you go talk to them after, they're like, no, I was just serious and thinking about what you were saying. And some people, like John here, when they smile, it's you know evident and you can see it. But with masks, it's even harder. So the good news is I don't need to be too concerned about what you think. And, uh, and the mask going to help hide that this morning, so... 1 John chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, do we have some in the back? Okay, if anybody doesn't have a Bible, there's some in the back, you can grab it. I would love for you to have God's word in your hand as we read together. And before we read, I want to pray. So let's do that. Lord, I do pray this morning simply that you would just illuminate us. Open our eyes to the power of your word, that you would encourage the Christians here this morning, us who believe in trusting Christ. And Lord, my prayer is for anybody who may not know Christ this morning, that today would be the day. That today would be the day that you penetrate their hearts and show them what true love is. We thank you so much for this privilege, this time. Holy Spirit, illuminate us with power by your word for your glory. Amen. All right, 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Grady just read the whole context. And if you've been at Maricopa Springs for a while, you know that going through 1 John, you guys have heard a lot of the same thing for months now. Probably, what, six, seven months, I think, in 1 John. And I wanted him to read the whole context of chapter 4 because without it, it's hard for us to see and understand what John is saying in these two verses this morning. So really, probably for the next three weeks would be my guess, you're going to be hearing a lot of the same thing, which is good for you, it's good for me, it's good for us to be reminded of what God's word says concerning true love. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, let me reread them for us. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I want to set the background here, the context to this whole letter. John, in writing this letter, the purpose, he says, is he writes it to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And he says it so that they may know that they have eternal life. That's the big picture of why John writes this entire letter. And this purpose is significant for us this morning to understand the context of John's emphasis here on love. And how he connects that with us knowing God. This same John, the Apostle John, also wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, he records and says that his purpose for writing that was so that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing in him, people may have life in his name. John is now writing this letter to believers, those who have already heard the message in chapter 1, and now he's unpacking for them what genuine faith looks like in Christ. John is sketching what true salvation produces in those who have truly come to believe in Jesus. We see in chapter 1 John talking about those who have seen and heard and touched the realities of the ministry of Christ. John being the apostle who was with Jesus. And now John has talked about genuine fellowship with Christ. Resulting in confessing and turning away from sin. If you remember chapters 1 and chapters 2 of this letter. John has been confronting false teachers and those who speak and live from this World. He has commanded believers not to love the world, if you remember chapter 2, or the things that are in the world. And he says because this world is passing away with all of its passions and all of its desires. And woven throughout these first three chapters and now into the fourth chapter is this subject of Christian love, which is the, defi- the defining virtue of true saving faith. In chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, John tells us that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides or remains in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He says, by this is, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness Is not from God, nor is the person who does not love his brother. The seriousness heightens in the following verses of chapter three when John says, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. And he says, Whoever does not love, they abide in death. So the stakes are high this morning for what we are looking at for John wants us to see. It's brotherly love, eternal life or eternal death. I have three points this morning, main points from this text that I want us to look at. Number one is knowing God. Number two is the outer appearance of love. And number three, we're going to talk about how God is love. Okay, so point number one, knowing God. John says here, listen to what he says again. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is about knowing God. John's main focus for us in these two verses and for the rest of chapter 4 is knowing God. Do we know him? It is the main focus of John's whole letter, which is true saving faith worked out in love. We have to ask the question, what does John mean? What does it mean to know God? John has been answering this question throughout this entire letter. What it means to know God. And this morning, John tells us that the true knowing of God means that we walk in love. We walk in love. First, John starts by calling us beloved. Notice that in this text. He says, Beloved. And beloved is amazing in and of itself because this word actually captures for us what John means when he says that love is from God. The term beloved means that we are dearly loved by God. It's Valentine's Day. How many of you men woke up and called your wife your beloved? Probably none of us. But the word means to be deeply loved and specifically here we are deeply loved by God. God. Before God saved any of us, we were not beloved by God. Our sins kept us from God, but God who is rich in love, he chose to lavish us and make us his beloved children. If you remember chapter 3 verse 1. And John wants us, his hearers, to know that love is the greatest focus, the greatest mark that we could have of knowing God. If you recall Jesus' teaching on what the greatest commandment was, he said what? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. Have you heard that phrase? Right? That's biblical. Love God, love others. This is the new covenant banner that flies over all people who truly know Jesus. John says, beloved, that's deeply loved ones here. He says, let us love one another. Why? He says, because love is from God. Scripture tells us in James chapter 1, verse 7, that every good and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Love is a perfect gift from God, is it not? And it comes from God. Love is, not de- love is not defined by us. Love is not defined by culture. Love is not defined by the governments of this world. It's not defined by media. It's not defined by romance like a day, like Valentine's Day. Love is defined and comes from God. God. God set love into motion as we experience it, as we know it, because it comes from him. He is the source of all that is lovely because love radiates forth from who he is. God, if we were to look at all of his, attribute, all of his attributes, they all promote his love. And John says that the reason we should love one another is because love is from God. John is showing us that there is a connection here between knowing Jesus and love. And if we claim to be from God, then we should love and have love manifesting from our lives, flowing out of who God is. It's a simple illustration really here, right? Like begets like. Jesus said a good tree bears what? Good fruit, right? John goes on here in this text to say that whoever has been born of God knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. It's a black and a white statement that John is telling us here. And John uses these statements throughout this entire letter. Many people claim to be Christians or to know God... But without the mark of brotherly love, their confessions are meaningless. John tells us that this experience of being born in God or born in Christ results in loving other people. Because love comes from God. You remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3? I made a joke every time I preach here. I, I think I always talk about Nicodemus, which is fine by me. But Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And John, who was with Jesus, who actually wrote John chapter 3, tells us that the true mark of actually being born from above is that we love because love comes from God. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and listen to what he says is the focus, the aim of the entire ministry of the gospel. He says, quote, The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Sincerity of faith has love at the center. This is really Christianity 101, right? This is the big idea John wants us to see this morning in these verses. He wants us, as genuine believers... To be assured of our faith because the fruit of our love. What did Jesus say to his disciples or his followers in John's gospel, if you recall? He said, by this, meaning love, all people will know that you're my disciples if you what? If you have love for one another. There's a lot of things we could fill in the gap that scripture talks about as far as being a genuine Christian, but... Jesus says, here's the main mark. People are going to know that you're mine if you actually have love for one another. If I were to tell you this morning that I was an expert in physical fitness, in nutrition, and taking care of my body, but I lived a sedentary life eating junk food all the time, at best you could say I'm a a hypocrite, right? And so it is with those who claim to know God but do not walk in love toward God. Others, and this is what God wants us to see this morning. So I want to spend some time looking at what love actually is. We can say love, we can talk about love. Today is very popular. I love you. Here's a rose, babe. Right, people. I saw them in line at sees candy. All these single guys just standing out there buying candy. I just they're, they're oblivious to what true love is. So what does John mean when he says, "If we love, then we know God"? Well. Point number 2, I want to talk about the outer appearance of love. The outer appearance of love. What are some ways that love should be manifesting in our lives if we truly know God and if we've been born of him? In chapter 3, John says, "Not do not love in word or in talk, but in deed or in truth." Grady preached on that maybe a couple weeks ago. He says, do not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. What was John saying when he wrote that? He was not saying that we should not love people with our speech or our words or that our tongue should not glorify God through how we love other people. We're going to look at that in just a minute, but John is merely saying that we should not be talkers about love, but that we should be doers of genuine love. Grady covered this a few weeks ago. John says right here, if anyone has the world's goods in chapter 3, yet sees his brother or sister in need, and yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love actually abide in that person? So one practical way that we can see that we actually love God by loving other people is that we display generosity and hospitality ...in our lives. Generosity and hospitality. We need to ask ourselves, how are we with our money? Right? How are we with our money? Do we see it as our money? Or do we see it as God's money that he has given us? Do we see money as not only something that God has given to us... ...that we can enjoy some good things and live in this life... ...which he does give it for that purpose... But, but that also that he gives it so that we could love other people, and specifically people who are in need. And that we could use our money to further the, the work, the mission, the preaching of the gospel in our lives and around the world. Do you guys remember the rich young ruler, Jesus' interaction with him? Jesus told him to go and to sell all that he had and to give it to the poor. And what happened? The rich young ruler turned and walked away sad. And the reason why is because his wealth was so great, but his heart was too small to be filled with the love of God. Paul writes to Timothy, and in chapter 6 he tells him to inform rich people, which, by the way, pretty much I think all of us would fit in that category, honestly. Being where we are, if we were to compare ourselves to the rest of the world, and that varies from each one of us in the different seasons God might has us. But Paul tells Timothy to inform the rich not to put their hope in riches, but to put your hope in God. who richly provides us with everything, he says, so that we could be rich in good deeds towards other people. How many of us, just simple ways, are showing generosity and hospitality in our lives? I'll list a few. Inviting people over into your home. How many of us would say, if we opened up our calendar in our life, we have a constant rhythm of inviting people into our home. Showing hospitality to other people. Preparing somebody a meal. It's such a small thing. But how many of us are doing that on a somewhat regular Basis. I lived in Egypt for a little bit, and when I was in Egypt, the hospitality was overwhelming. People who are in poverty wanted to give me what they had so that I could experience the hospitality that they had towards me. How many of us are simply just opening up our lives, our calendars, and saying, hey, we want to invite people in to experience God's love through us? Uh, Let's see here, spending time with people, talking about the beauty and the glory of Christ. How many of us show love and show generosity and hospitality by, again, inviting others into our life? How many of us have befriended people who you know need friends and show them hospitality, show them interest in their life, opening up our daily activities to those around us? Sharing ourselves with others is a display of God's love. And John here tells us that this represents those who know God. We could be setting aside funds that God gives us so that when the needs do come, which they will, we'll be ready to give and to care for those who have need. Our lives as Christians, this is a big one here, especially in America, money is going to show people a lot of what we love. And our lives need to show others that monetary gain is not our treasure as disciples of Christ, but that Christ is our treasure. And money is a great way to show other people love by caring and using it for God's glory. If you remember Paul writing to the church of Corinth, listen to what he says about the motivation to be loving other people through meeting needs and being generous. He says this, quote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I don't know about you, but that's convicting to me. When I read this verse, it makes me want to weep and it convicts me that I would be displaying the type of love that shows that Jesus humbled himself, became poor. He is the richest of all, so that I, through his poverty, being nailed to a cross, might become rich in him. So generosity and hospitality, those are a few ways that we can show practical love, proving ourselves, not by earning anything from God, but just showing that we actually know God that we've had an experience with God through new birth that Jesus has captured and changed our hearts. But another way we can show this is with our mouth, okay, with our speech. And this is a big one. This is a big one. How do we communicate with other people? Just, just think about that for a sec. How do we communicate with other people? What does our speech the way we respond with our words, say about our genuineness of faith in Christ. James tells us if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Do we speak words of edification that are smothered with grace towards other people who hear them? Ephesians 4.29 tells us, Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouth, but only that which is good, which builds up those who hear. Does this describe our daily speech? If we were to think about it. Do we speak the truth in love to other people, not flattering people, but loving other people with honest words that are soaked in gentleness? To help them further along in their walk with Christ. Jesus said this. He said, out of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. Right? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of who we are come the words that proceed from our mouth. The things we say, they paint a picture of the depth and the knowledge that we have of God. Scripture tells us to, to not let our I'm sorry, scripture tells us to let our speech be gracious, to be seasoned with salt to those we communicate with. And Paul tells Titus to instruct Christians to not speak evil of anyone, but to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Wow, this is a convicting one. Perfect courtesy. Courtesy towards all people with our mouth. Think about that. Do our words show perfect courtesy to people who are in our way? People who believe different things that we believe? People who are interrupting our calendars? Or is our mouth being used to curse people? We need to think about how God made each human being in his image. And if people are made in God's image, then how should we, as mere co-creatures made by God, speak to other people in a way that does not show them perfect courtesy, that does not love them? They're made after God's own image. Do we prefer to hear ourselves talk rather than listen? I'm growing in this one, right? Do we prefer to share our opinion? Instead of listening to somebody else talk. And really humbling ourselves to love them with our speech. How many of us need to work on our love towards other people by what we say? Do our words cut and bite and devour other people? Or do our words act like the sweet healing balm for the soul? Parents. How do you speak to your children? Do we communicate to our children like the good shepherd, with gentleness and patience and tenderness? Or do we find ourselves often erupting like a volcano because our children are sinners and they need the grace of God in Christ? You've heard the phrase, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Is that actually a true statement, though, biblically? The answer is no. Scripture actually tells us that our words either bring forth life or they bring forth death. And if we have been given life in Christ, as John says, if, if we know God or we say that we know him, then our words ought to bring life to those around us. And this displays love because love comes from God. Another practical way that we can show love is by humility and servitude. Humility and servitude. Selfishness is the apex of sin. Focused on self. That's what Satan is concerned with. That's what he deceived Eve and Adam to be concerned with, to be concerned with self. But genuine love, true love, puts selfishness to death. Jesus, speaking of his own earthly, mi- sorry, Jesus, speaking of his own earthly mission, said this. He said, "The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve." And to give his own life as a ransom for many. How does our walk display servitude in love towards other people? How are we, metaphorically speaking, laying down our lives for one another in love? On a very practical and a very current note, how many of us, or should I say you in this moment, are liking wearing masks here? How many of us have spent more time complaining about masks and our opinion about them rather than just laying down our rights as Christians to serve other people? I know I'm guilty of not doing that, which is convicting. Because it's such a small, minimal, ridiculous thing to wear a mask and not complain about it as a Christian. I have four young kids. I do not have to look very far, literally almost every minute of every day to see selfishness on rampant display. But if I'm honest, I do not have to look very far to see selfishness in my own life, in all kinds of areas where I still need God's grace to grow me. Maturity in our walk means that we become more Servant-like. We become more loving as servants. When we become more like Jesus, more like God, we become more servant-like. And to serve others means that we prefer others before ourselves. In areas of even freedom areas. Mask is just one of them. There's so many Christian freedoms that we have. Liberties. That we prefer over ourselves instead of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have time to talk about them this morning. John says whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Another way that we show ourselves to truly know God and to act in love is by forgiving other people, forgiving one another in Christ. Do we find it hard to forgive others when they sin against us? Jesus, as he was being crucified, the son of God, the only perfect person, hanging on a cross, every right to cast down judgment upon those who were crucifying, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does our life show that we know God by extending grace to others through horizontal forgiveness? Paul tells the believers in Galatia in chapter 6 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is the law of love. It's what Jesus said is the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God. He said the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. Bearing one another's burdens, walking with one another who are momentarily caught in sin with patience and gentleness and humility, forgiving those who wrong us. Who are we? We're sinners. Christ has lavished forgiveness upon us. I don't have time to go into the parables that Jesus uses to talk about people who say they know him but don't forgive and extend forgiveness to other people. He says, no, you actually don't know me. You don't know God. You haven't been born of God if you don't forgive other people. In the church, sadly, right, why are we even talking about that? Why would we not show forgiveness willingly all the time regardless whether somebody comes to us and reconciles or not. As soon as we're sinned against, that should just be gone if we have a proper view of Christ in the gospel towards us. Listen to what Peter says. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You guys know 1 Corinthians 13, right? I bet you today... Unbelievers all over are writing that on cards. They're purchasing it. They're taking it out of a context. They're stealing God's words. And they're using them in a fluffy, unbiblical, unloving way. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude to other people. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable, it's not resentful towards others. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. He says, love bears all things, it believes all things, and it hopes all things, and love endures all things. This is a sermon in and of itself, in probably three or four sermons, right? Right? Go home this week and just spend some time in light of 1 John and reflect on what Paul writes to the Corinthians here and just ask God to transform your life more and more. Romans 12, I love Romans 12.10. Paul writing to the church at Rome, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. And just so you guys know, the term brothers or brotherly, when it's used here, it refers to you ladies. Brothers is just a term for brothers and sisters, It's just how it's written here. So it's not excluding women. So this could be read, love one another with, with brotherly, with common affection, familial affection towards one another. Do we desire as Christians to actually be with other Christians? How many of us at times are... Oh, I don't want to deal with that person at church. Man, they're sure annoying. I don't really, oh, keep, I walk, got the kids, got to go. Don't want to talk to them. Whatever it might be. How many of us need to be realigned with true love, having true affection for one another? In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul's signing off this long letter to the church at Corinth. Listen to what he says. He says, to the churches of Asia... They send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. I just love that, right? It's like the Campbell's commercial, the hearty soup. It's just so good. It's like that adjective, if that wasn't there, it'd still be good, but hearty greetings. These aren't like, oh, hey, how you doing? This is like robust bear hug, love, affection, The Bible even says to greet one another with a what? A holy kiss. We don't do that today. It's kind of weird to us. But that's a genuine affection, a true love. Do we see other Christians coming from afar? And we can't wait to embrace them to let them know we love them. And not because of superficial love, but because Christ has loved us. And he has lavished us to make us his own. Are we getting the picture here of what? True love looks like in practicality. We could go all day. I, I sent Grady a text. I said, Hey, you know, let me know how many times does the New Testament used the word specifically to love one another. I did my counting, he did his. I was at 15, he was at 14. You decide who's better at math, but that's just the specific love one another. If we were to look at the whole of the New Testament, all the nuances of love, the commands there, they're overwhelming. For us as Christians. And I want to make sure here. Before we move on to the next point. That none of us read what John is saying here. None of you listen to what I'm saying. And you start questioning if you're actually really a Christian. Some of you might not be Christians. And God will by his grace I pray work in your heart. But for us who are genuinely saved. For you who are genuinely saved. I don't want you to read this going oh my goodness. I've got a lot of love to work on, and I'm probably not even a Christian. I was here back last year preaching on 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and I spoke about the difference between practiced obedience and perfect obedience. John writes earlier in this letter, and he says, Look, if, if you say you know God, if you're in God, then you will no longer sin. And what he didn't mean was that we would now live a perfectly sinless life in this Existence, but that our life would have a practiced obedience, a transformation of course. And so this morning, look, if you're being convicted, which all of us should be, we should be spurred on by the love of Christ to walk in greater love towards one another. John's purpose in writing this is not to cause genuine Christians to be nervous about if they're actually saved or not, but to actually bolster our assurance. And God's grace convicts true believers and leads us into more and more faithfulness to him. Point three. Okay, point three. Look at the text here. 1 John 4, 8. Says this, anyone who does not know God, I'm sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. We're going to finish with this. God is love how is god love it's a big question a lot of people sadly make the love of god this willy-nilly honestly valentine's day type of love it has no weightiness no depth but that's not what john means here when he says that god is love look i could literally spend hours and hours and hours, the rest of our days, sitting at this pulpit, preaching to you about how God is love. But unless you want to hang out a while, we don't have that time, right? So all of God's attributes display and depict the fact that God is love. We could talk about God's holiness, that is his singular devotion to his great name, as being the apex of love. We could talk about God's righteousness and how him being perfectly right in all things displays the fact that God is love because he's righteous. We could talk about his patience, his kindness, his justice, the fact that God does not allow sin to go unpunished, and showing all of you that this is because God is love. And I want us to see all of these things this morning, and I want to do it by pointing us to the greatest display of God's love. I want us to see the central focus, the apex of God's love. God is love. How do we know that? How do we see that? What is the most specific way that we can see that God is love? And it's the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. How many of you have heard the term cross-centered, gospel-centered? This church, if you're new here, is a Christ-centered, gospel-centered church. Which means that we see that Jesus, crucified and lifted up, is the apex. He is the greatest display that God is love. God proves to us and shows us that he is love through Jesus being lifted up. On our behalf. And no doubt all of God's actions towards us as creatures shows us that God loves us. Right? I just dropped the kids off in the back. They're talking about their favorite things in creation. And we could talk about that. I don't want to minimize that. The fact that he chose to even make human beings. Why? Why? did he create anything? Why does he sustain us and provide for us our daily needs? Oh, it's been great. I've been enjoying sitting on the patio these last few weeks, just enjoying the 70-degree weather, the sun radiating on my face. Why would God love me and do that? These things should spur us on, right, towards worship. The fact that God is the sovereign in his scope and his infinite power over all creation, that he upholds all of existence right now, that shows that he is love. But all of these displays of God's love do not even come close to compare with the cross of Christ. Let us all consider for a moment that God, being love, created us to enjoy Him forever. Yet, we sinned against God, we sinned against Him. Throughout redemptive history, God has patiently and purposefully chosen to show mercy and kindness toward the human race by not unleashing his wrath once and for all upon us. God chose to determine a plan from before the foundation of the world to save sinners like us through his son, Jesus, which shows that God is. Is love. God established covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. All of these pointing to his greatest love which is fulfilled in Christ who is the new covenant and it's in his blood. God showed his greatest love to us by sending his son to be crushed for the sins of all who would look to him by faith. I I preached on this in 1 John 2, verse 2. And Paul writes to the Romans, and he says that he, God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Christian, God is love. God is love. He willingly laid down his own life, Jesus, to redeem wretched sinners like us from the impending doom of his wrath. Jesus said this, he said, this is my commandment in John 15, that you love one another as I have loved you. He goes on, or previously in John 13, this is what the apostle records about Jesus. He says, quote, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world back to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, it says he loved them to the end. And I know I fall short in loving to the end a lot of times. Jesus did not fall short. He loved us to the end. What is the end that John is talking about? Well, Jesus tells us. He says there's no greater love than when a man lays down his life for his friends. Jesus is God. God is love. And yet, while we were still sinners, Scripture tells us that what? that Christ died for the ungodly. We weren't even pleasing. Scripture says, man, it's one thing to go and lay down your life for somebody who's like a good person, and, you know, we're like, oh, yeah, that person, you know, they've done a lot of good things. We were none of that. We were ungodly people, and he sought us. Peter says he himself, this is Jesus, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's the cross. He says, So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like strange sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. There is no greater display of love than God who is love, shown to us in the sacrifice of Christ for the redemption of his people. He came down to purchase us, to make us his own, to get his bride and to bring her to himself. God is love. Is this connecting with how we, if we say we know him, if we are born of him, then we ought to display love towards other people. If we look at the cross And are staring at the cross. I heard one pastor say to be stunned. You know, just like, you know, we're just stunned by the cross. Our life will be radically full of love. Because it flows from God. Look, if you're here this morning, there might be one of you, there might be more. And you have yet to experience the love of God through faith in Christ. Look, I implore you this morning... To look to Christ, to turn from your sin, to trust, to believe in Christ, and to be saved. And to walk in love, because God is love. Jesus, he is the perfect, the righteous, the holy God. He was strung up on a cross for sinners to look to him and be saved. That might be you this morning. You might be coming to church all the time, yet you've actually not been born again. I pray today would be the day the message would sink in and God would make you his own, that you would turn from your sins and that you would follow Christ. Look, Grady, he preached last week about this church, the philosophy of ministry at this church. This church is not concerned about getting a bunch of numbers, but it is concerned about getting people saved. Not because Grady gets people saved or anybody else, but because we believe that Christ saves sinners. And that's why we're here and the slogan here is to help people meet and follow Jesus. So look, if that's you, like, come talk to me. Come talk to Grady after. We're not going to save you, but come talk to us. We want people to know Christ, to treasure Christ, to be saved in Christ. We're going to die, all of us. And without Christ, we have no hope. I, uh, on, the, on the drive down here... We were listening to a biography by, about John Newton, and it's a kid's version of this. My wife got it at the library. It's amazing. Have you ever heard the, the um, famous hymn, Amazing Grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? Everybody's like, yeah. Well, John Newton's whole life was complete rebellion. He wasn't fearing God in death. He didn't care, but God captured his heart and made him his own. And then later he wrote that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. Look, to the Christians this morning, which I would assume is most people here, that's what the church is. It's Christians, believers coming together. Look, my desire in preaching this sermon is that you would see afresh the love of God that is in Christ and that by seeing him, you may see God's love deeper and wider and that it may transform your walk with Christ for his glory. A lot of people these days are looking for 10 steps to become a better Christian. Five ways to be more like Jesus. Look, there's one way. It's to look at Christ, to stare at the Son of God, to see the gospel afresh, to ponder the riches of the gospel more and more and more. And the more we do that, the more we spend time, all of us, in God's word, treasuring his word, our life is going to be transformed. Let me read First John 4, 7 and 8 again, and then we're going to close. Beloved, that is dearly loved ones. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your grace, your word. I thank you that it goes forth. It accomplishes that for which you send it. Lord, like rain coming down from heaven, which you give, which makes crops grow, which brings about the harvest. Lord, you will save sinners. Each sheep that is yours, you will bring to yourself, God. I just pray that we would be captured and penetrated and moved more and more in our love towards you, which manifest in our love towards one another for your glory. We thank you for this time this morning, and we just bless your great name. Amen.